This is a KTF Press podcast. See, when we talk about liberation, like Dr. James Cone said, we're also talking about salvation. If liberation was just about the soul, God would have left the people of Israel in Egypt. Your souls are saved. Continue to you know, make bricks without straw. Uh, but he saves them. And God saves them in body, mind, soul, and spirit, and they go and celebrate. And so there's this, so this idea of uh, economic liberation. This goes down to the, the nuts and bolts, the daily fabric of our work days. Welcome to Shake the Dust, leaving colonized faith of the kingdom of God. I'm Jonathan Walton. And I'm Cy Hoekstra. We are very excited today to be talking about economic justice and uh, the ways that Christians and churches can participate in neighborhood flourishing with two incredible guests who Jonathan will introduce in one second. Before we get started on that, just a quick reminder for everybody to go to ktfpress.com and consider becoming a subscriber to our Substack. That gets you the bonus episodes of this show. It supports everything we do on this show. It gets you our weekly newsletter where Jonathan and I curate media highlights to uh, help you in discipleship and political education. Uh, it supports you know, the work we do with books and articles and everything else, centering and elevating marginalized voices as we leave colonized faith. And uh, we would really appreciate it if you would go there and considering signing up as a paid subscriber. Jonathan, now that I've I've gotten that out of the way, please tell the people who, who we have with us uh, this afternoon. Well, I can't say this afternoon because I don't know when you're listening, but Jonathan, please tell the people who we have with us. Our guests today are Reverend Jose Humphreys and Dr. Adam Gustine, the authors of the book Ecosystems of Jubilee, Economic Ethics, for the neighborhood. Um, Reverend Humphreys is a native New Yorker, ordained minister and co-founder of Metro Hope Church, a multi-ethnic and multicultural church in the amazing neighborhood East Harlem in New York City. Um, he's also a social worker, consultant, and author of the award-winning book, Seeing Jesus in East Harlem, What Happens When Churches Show Up and Stay Put. Uh, Reverend Jose participates in shalom making and trauma-informed healing work through facilitating conversations across social, economic, racial, and religious boundaries. Amen. Um, Dr. Adam Gustine is an assistant director of the University of Notre Dame's Center for Social Concerns, uh, focused on justice education and research for the common good. He has worked in a wide variety of church, nonprofit, denominational, and educational contexts, and has a doctor of ministry degree from Missio Seminary in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania. He's also the author of Becoming a Just Church, Cultivating Communities of God's Shalom. It's a 2019 IVP Reader's Choice Award in Christian Practice. They are qualified to have this conversation. That's what all <laughs> that means. Thank y'all so, so much <laughs> for, for being here today. Um, and so I, you know, I would, we'd love to just start off with, with a big picture question. Um, this book is trying to teach us about biblical economic justice by looking at laws from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures about gleaning, Sabbath, and Jubilee. Um, I think a lot of Christians have a hard time understanding the relevance of these things, um, especially these laws that we no longer follow. And they come from portions of the Torah that often seem like the most difficult to understand. And so can you tell us why these particular aspects of the law are a good starting point for us to jump into economic justice to apply today? Sure. I'll, I'll jump right in there, John. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Uh, grateful to be here. 
and have this uh, conversation. So, you know, it's interesting, like I'm a career Christian, right? I grew up in the church <laughs> and, you know, we did tend to uh, avoid the Levitical laws and all these other, you know, just like, yeah, let's skip over Chronicles, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and, and those other uh, seminal books in the Bible. Uh, but what we found when we started talking about this idea of like uh, economics within the larger ecosystem, uh, we found that there was some, some wisdom in the Old Testament that we could actually glean from. I think our, our greater question wasn't so much how do we uh, apply this and make it relevant. You know, we wanted to kind of meet uh, the Old Testament on its own terms. And mm -hmm. as, as the question, what was God perhaps intending in having these laws, like a Sabbath, a gleaning, and a jubilee, cyclical laws, right, that would address issue matters of land, labor, ownership, uh, and slavery. And it was almost, it almost popped out of the page for us when we're reading the text. It was just like, oh, you know what? God, God was creating, uh, this, these laws of justice, uh, that were cyclical in nature, of course, going by the, you know, agrarian culture. Right. Uh, but it really spoke to this larger thing about, Hey, we need to revisit uh, the life of society because left to its own devices, left alone, uh, even when we do have policies, there are unintended uh, consequences. And mm -hmm. society is not neutral, meaning that uh, all of the benefits, all of the goods can end up in the hands of a few. So in here, when, so when we're looking at the Old Testament, we're saying we were we were saying, oh wow, there was something very corrective, restorative, if you want, if you want, uh, about what God was was creating in this uh, society, this pattern of justice, this pattern of restoration and restitution. And then we thought, hey, I think this is something that we could, uh, you know, as we as we had the conversation, uh, Adam and I said, hey, this is something that could actually, you know, uh, meet our current moment when we when we see the disparities that we see in our society. Mm -hmm. So I think the other piece of that is that um, if you look at the start of Jesus's ministry, particularly in Luke 4, where he enters the temple and he reads from the prophet Isaiah and he says that I've come uh, to, in a sense, declare the year of the Lord's favor is the, the, the quote that he uh, reads from Isaiah is a, is a direct reference to the year of Jubilee. And I think that's the thing that sort of animates our imagination as well. As Jose says, all of these Old Testament laws were descriptions of God's ideal society and a way of like recalibrating something that naturally gets off track. But if Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God come in me is an expression of the year of Jubilee, then, then we it's not just a cycle anymore. It's the way that it ought to be, that the kingdom of God operates by this uh, this sort of ethos, these ethics are, are now part of the tapestry of the way that we are meant to live all the time. You know, Christians everywhere are trying to think through, like, what does it mean to live out the ethics of the kingdom of God in real time and place? And Jesus is saying, you know, our argument is Jesus is saying, well, economically speaking, it should look like that. And so, you know, you may not be able to apply it. Not everybody has a field to leave the edges of uh, for people to <laughs> glean from. But what are the ways in which we can, uh, as Jose said, have a moral imagination 
to animate a way of life that's sort of undergirded by these ethical principles. And so I think that's really what it comes to for us is, is to live in the kingdom of God means to embrace this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I'm realizing we should probably just briefly say for the audience what, what these laws entail, right? So the gleaning you just mentioned is when people have, have crops in a field, leaving the corners and uh, for people to, to harvest themselves who don't own land or who are poor and then not going over the field a second time to get whatever you missed. Like that was a command for, for any, anyone who was working land to do that. And then, you know, obviously Sabbath is, is daily time to rest. And then every seven years, uh, is it forgiving debts every seven years? That's what happens. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Jubilee is every 50 years returning land uh, to the people, to the, the families who originally owned it uh, as set out, you know, by God when they reach the promised land. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, setting people free who were, who were in debt bondage. Uh, and, a, and a few other things, but those are kind of the basics of those laws. So taking those laws as a framework um, for how we ought to engage with economics today, I think is is a helpful way to look at it rather than just trying to figure out, you know, inspire your imagination, not just like figure out a bunch of do's and don'ts, I think is, is a helpful way to look at it. Mm-hmm. And um, so you two talk about in the book, the scarcity mindset as being antithetical to the biblical justice of God. And and the scarcity mindset leads to what you call the three E's of economic injustice, which are are exclusion, extraction, and exploitation. Can you just describe for us what what you mean by a scarcity mindset and why it's so harmful? Sure. Um, No, and and I think that's that's well put uh, in terms of the overall summary that I do think is the framework and the framework is meant to help us resist to those three E's. That really, as you say, is sort of rooted in that notion of scarcity. I think a, a real basic summary is the is the fear of not enough. Mm. Uh, scarcity is the fear of not enough, and the scarcity mindset is a way of living in the world that's animated by that sense of fear. And I think anytime we think that there's not enough, then we are less likely to be open-handed and much more likely to be closed-fisted. And economically speaking, you know, of course, we're talking about our assets. And if I'm close-fisted with my assets in a world uh, that that I believe does not have enough for everyone, including myself, then then my neighbors are not are no longer uh, people who share space with me, people who I'm meant to flourish with. My neighbors become opponents, mm-hmm. and my neighbors become enemies. And if if you take that that to its logical end, then the fear of scarcity becomes a form of vulnerability. And by that, I mean that when we are enmeshed in that fear, when we are animated by that fear, when we're locked up in the fear that there is not enough, then we are prone to be taken advantage of by those who would seek to capitalize on that fear in society. And so like in the book, we talk about a lot of different historical examples of legislation that is passed that enacts economic injustice that preys on the fear of scarcity uh, that's rooted in like the dominant culture. So like the rich and wealthy are afraid there's not enough. And those fears are preyed upon to justify things like economic exclusion and economic Mm -hmm. extraction and economic exploitation of the poor and the vulnerable. And so it's really kind of an insidious thing that, of course, that's something that's interpersonal between me and my neighbor. But that's also something that comes 
comes out in like anti-immigration laws and, and those kinds of mm-hmm. things that, that really exploit people. So I don't know if Jose, if you want to chime in there, but those are the kinds of things that we're thinking about. Sure. I, I couldn't help but think about this also from uh, just uh, the framework of discipleship, right? So we're swimming in the waters of capitalism and that determines the patterns and practices of how we we spend money, we use resources, and even our relationship to our stuff, right? In, in a consumer different society. I heard someone recently say that money is our most unconscious agreement. Mm. In other words, capitalism in many ways and consumerism creates the pathways for how we use it, right? And and to think like if we have a scarcity mentality or if we just have we critically uh engage our, uh, uncritically engage our consumerism. We're not thinking about new patterns and practices. In other words, a scarcity mentality uh, will dullen the imagination for something different. How is it that I could use my money more creatively? How is it that I can own differently? All right, we're going to own. That's the world we live in. I have this second house. Not me, literally, I wish, but <laughs> but I have this. How, how is it that I can share that, you know, put it back into God's ecosystem of, of shared economy of open handedness that would allow this to maybe be a, a blessing for others? So I think part of economic discipleship or the practice of uh, uh, economics of solidarity is to have folks really think about what they do have even when they don't have much, right? And, and you know, people in lower uh, socioeconomic runs, rungs are more creative, <laughs> are more generous. Like the, the data proves it. Um, I think what happens is the more you get, the more you amass, the more you're afraid to lose. Mm-hmm. As y'all are talking, like, you know, we talk about the, the abundant provision as the basis for a lot of your thinking about economic injustice. Um, but, you know, we've heard about or been a part of like churches that often weaponize the idea of abundance um, as a tool to extract wealth from their congregations via the prosperity gospel or just other similar theologies that hang out in that space. Um, Did you think about um, the ways that churches misapply the idea of abundance or some of the ideas you're bringing up? And, And what are some of the guardrails against those misapplications in your way of thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. Um, and I guess maybe to get at that, let me just give two quick examples that we use from the book uh, that are both from scripture, but I think point at the way that I, the way that I think about that question. Um, I think ultimately it's a question of what we do with God's abundance. And I think there's two moves that I see. One is Old Testament in the journey through the wilderness, the people are provided, you know, the manna and quail in the wilderness. To, and 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 in in that sense, it's it's abundant in the sense of it's God's enough. There's more than enough for everyone, right? And that's sort of our working definition of God's abundance is more than enough for everyone. But the question is, what do the people do in the face of God's abundance? Their response is to hoard, and it's it's a it's a pretty individualistic way of thinking about it. But confronted with God's abundance, it triggers that sense of scarcity, and I start to hoard for myself. And of course, in that story, when when people hoard God's abundance, it actually corrupts God's abundance. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the very thing that turns it. Uh, it the, the food actually goes bad 
because they hoard God's abundance. The, the flip side of that is in the New Testament, the, the classic story of the loaves and fishes. Uh, what looks like a scarce amount in the hands of Jesus becomes an abundance that actually flows out to all the people that are there. Mm-hmm. No one hoards, it's an overflowing to others. And I think that's really the, the difference. And the examples that you're talking about uh, of when confronted with God's abundance, we weaponize it, is that we use God's abundance to prey on people's fear that there's not enough for themselves. Um, and in most cases where churches or pastors enrich themselves along those lines, they're, they're enriching themselves by preying on the fear by saying, if you do this, there'll be more for you on the backside of it. And I think a lot of the examples that we're trying to tease out in the book of the alternative of that is a recognition that because this is from God, because this is God's, it's not mine to hoard. It's meant to overflow out from my community to others. And I really think that's that's a big piece of the difference there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One interesting thing I think about the example of the, the manna from heaven is the instinct to hoard there, actually with the loaves and the fishes too, the instinct to hoard there from the perspective of those people makes a very logical sense <laughs> from from the perspective of not, like not from the like, kingdom-minded perspective, right? These are people who were just slaves for hundreds of years who have come out into the desert where there's not a lot of food and they're getting some food, so you might as well save it because you don't know when your next meal is coming, right? Or like the boy who just has his lunch. It's like, if I give up this lunch, what, what am I going to eat? You know, <laughs> like this, these things, like I, I feel like from the perspective of the people actually in the story would be very logical. And so I, I think it also, from that angle, kind of helps us see how it's really easy not to trust it, how counterintuitive God's, the the idea of God's abundance is and how trying to um, live just your own life, let alone the whole economic life of the neighborhood from the idea of abundance is extremely challenging. Yeah. One, one, one of the, uh, one of the interesting things that comes out of Leviticus is uh, God making the statement uh, the land belongs to Yahweh. And in many ways that was kind of the framing reality. All right. I'm the landlord. What you have actually belongs to me. So it even will influence uh, a landowner's stewardship of the land. If, if they're actually walking in line with that divine logic, that whatever it is that I have, you know, the check that I get in the mail, uh, yeah, it might have my boss's signature, but at the end, Yahweh is providing for this. And if it doesn't belong to me, then how is it that I resubmit this, this check that has come to a specific system? How do I now resubmit it into God's ecosystem of grace? So now what we're doing is we're, we're creating an alternative system of exchange. We're saying, oh, we're not exchanging tender here. We're actually giving gifts. And that's that's when we're talking about that larger economy of grace, the greater economy, as Wendell Berry uh, defines it. So now I have, if I'm thinking about it like this, then perhaps I have a different relationship to my money. And uh, so, you you know, we bring up different examples in the book, like anything from what about the money in your pocket, right? You think about it as, as this gleaning concept. Maybe it's not just extra change. I have $5 in my pocket, a true story. Last Sunday, I'm on, on my way to church rushing to preach. There's someone standing in front of the restaurant saying, hey, could you buy me something to eat? 
And I'm like, I got to preach a sermon. I got to go. And I don't even know if I have cash. I take a few steps past him. Something tells me, you know what, go back and go buy him a meal. And when I just listen to that kind of internal voice in my in my mind, in my heart, you know, I realized in that at that time, it wasn't really just buying him in a meal. The the money facilitated an interaction where that man could be seen and acknowledged as for, for who he is, uh, a human being created in God's image, a child of God, not just some random person asking for money. So I changed, for me, the nature of the agreement had changed in that moment. And I think that, uh, yeah, the purpose of the book is just it's just that, helping helping people's moral imagination uh, to, to be opened and challenged in a way that they can think about their resources and those everyday exchanges that we're making. Should I, how much money do I wanna spend in one month in my neighborhood versus going outside to uh, the usual folks, you know, the big box uh, development where the, the flow of resources don't find them their, their way back into my community. And, and to begin with that question, John, even that's what you were saying with prosperity gospel, the flow of dollars in, in, in those mega churches stays within that mega church for the most part, you know what I mean? To, to finance the operation, you know, it's like, uh, you know, little shop of horrors, feed the beast, feed me Seymour. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it's just to say, okay, but how much is actually like, you know, going out into the ecosystem we call our neighborhood and mm-hmm. in order so that our neighborhood could flourish. So you, you just mentioned feeding the beast and there's a point in the book where you, one of the practical tips that you give is the idea of a church benevolence fund for the neighborhood. So taking something that the church normally does for its its own congregants and doing it for everybody around them. And that's kind of what it struck me is that a lot of your book is actually suggesting that, is, is suggesting treating the the neighborhood around the church the way that congregants of a church are are often used to treating each other. And so I'm wondering why you think we end up thinking in that kind of insular way about our our money and our close knit group within the church and how we can sort of expand our thinking uh, outward more. The church in America, as we know it, tends to move into neighborhoods, or sometimes I think just like fly in from neighborhoods and just land there, right? <laughs> uh, just like where did that come from? Like it's like where did that Whole Foods come from? You know this shit, uh, and it it will often follow the the corporate model. Um, and it's maybe this unconscious corporate model. Uh, we are going to become the flagship of this neighborhood. Maybe even a one-stop shop. You can you can get it all here, right? Not realizing that you know in their very neighborhood, the very things that they're trying to do are actually the services, the the, the care are actually located in different organizations in their ecology. So they become this one-stop shop, and um, they they become the flagship of the community instead of becoming a part of the fellowship of the community. And I think that that's where ecosystems thinking really uh, can feed our imagination or even what some people would call biomimicry, uh, mm-hmm. realizing that, you know, look at the way trees cooperate in the forest. You know, their trees, their, their roots are actually un- entangled underneath the surface and they're sending, you know, nutrients to the, the tree that's in distress right now because they're not getting enough sun or for whatever reason or or the elder tree that, uh, as its last act, you know, gasping its last breath, metaphorically, uh, is now sending out its own nutrients for the benefit of those trees that are just beginning, and 
And there's just, just this beautiful exchange that's happening on the ground. And I think, you know, we have so many different systems in, in our neighborhoods, right? Political systems, uh, housing systems, uh, economic systems, everything that we consider a part of the commons. And I think that that's where, where the discipleship comes in, where uh, what happens if a church actually decenters itself and, be, mm-hmm. and then begins to realize like, oh, I'm, I'm not supposed to be at the center of something. I'm supposed to be a part of it. And, and it's in, in this beautiful collaborative exchange that, that actually Christian witness can happen in relationship. But it really is like a, a revolution in uh, how the church's own self-concept in place. Mm-hmm. One of the really big imaginative challenges in this is that very question that you're talking about uh, of getting uh, all of us collectively to see ourselves as part of the neighborhoods and the communities that we're that we're for. And I think that many of the challenges of of work in the the, the fields that we're talking about here get down to this barrier of the church seeing themselves as in a, like an us versus them sort of way uh, as it relates to the community. And you know, like. For generations, Christians and churches in the United States have been fed a steady diet of the culture is against us, the culture is out to get us, the culture is the enemy. Mm. And at the end of the day, the imagination of the church in America at large, particularly like majority culture churches, really tend to uh, see the culture as the enemy and the church as a haven from that. Uh, something that should be protected. And if that's the case, it actually doesn't take too much of a leap to then go to the scriptures and find examples of the church or the people of God uh, actually as sort of being oppressed by the larger culture around Mm -hmm. them. And so it's pretty easy to then like read ourselves into that story. And so if you think about Old Testament, the church is in exile, you know, the people of God, sorry, are in exile in Babylon. Well, what are those people thinking? What are they feeling? I, I think it's not too hard for us to imagine what they're thinking and feeling when they're in exile in Babylon. And I think about a psalm like Psalm 137, which is one of those classic ones where they say, you know, like the psalms are pretty violent because here's the psalmist saying we should dash the babies of Babylon's heads on rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like, well, actually, that's written when they're in exile in Babylon. And that's exactly what we would expect the people to be thinking when they're in exile in Babylon. And it's pretty easy to see ways that the church today sort of adopts that posture towards the wider world. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing to me is that it's into that emotion that God interjects Jeremiah 29, where it says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city that I've sent you and pray for it because if the city prospers, you will prosper. Mm -hmm. Meaning your fortunes are tied up together with the city. No, not dash their heads on the rocks. Instead, seek the peace and the, the flourishing of the community. And see, to me, I think that's the imaginative shift is that God is always inviting the people into that space. And the temptation for us is always to like try and cordon ourselves off from society. That's really the fundamental tension, the imaginative shift that I think we need to be making. Okay. Yes. Question then. <laughs> you just made Jonathan think 18 different things at once. <laughs> I did. So what you're saying is good news, right? 
Like what you're saying is good news, period, full stop. But when Jesus is arrested, Peter pulls out the sword, chops off the dude's ear because the coming of the kingdom as Peter interprets it is actually not good news because he wants different news, right? When the angel shows up um, to like in the Christmas story, like, you know, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Like they weren't looking for that. Like it wasn't something that they were like set up for. It's something they were aware of a story they knew about, but like, that's not what liberation looks like for them or what they would have been looking for, but it's definitely good news and the liberation of Jesus. And so in the book, like you're claiming that, and I, and I believe like that the idea of Jubilee and the modern economy is good news. Like in our present day, that's good news, but it might not feel like good news to rich and poor people. Because if I grew up in material poverty the answer to my material poverty sounds like material wealth. Like that's why I'm on this performance treadmill in the capitalistic society that we're in. Right. Um, But it is good news and it does produce positive outcomes for rich and poor people. So can you explain the differences there and like Mm -hmm. how this is good news for the rich and the poor and, and maybe, you know, the unintuitive ways that economic justice liberates wealthy people as a, we we're moneyed up right now. <laughs> Man, that's a complex question. And and Sai was right. You had about 18 th- different things just floating through your mind. All at once. <laughs> Everything, everywhere, all at once. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the interesting thing, let me let's let's continue your thread, right? Uh on the offensiveness of this all. <laughs> so <laughs> so Luke chapter four. Jesus goes into his hood, opens up the scroll as his custom. You know, reads Isaiah 61. Everybody's impressed. But then, and then it was also like, you know, the whole Shane Claiborne thing, right? It was almost like, I'm announcing my candidacy, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to liberate the oppressed, set the captive free, de- declare the year of Jubilee. Everybody was impressed until he described how uh, this Jubilee plan would also be for the Romans and also for the for the Gentiles. And then mm-hmm. he almost got thrown off a cliff, right? If that's what the scripture mm-hmm. recalls, right? And, and so we see that, like, here, here's Jesus uh, being of offense to the exiles, exiles and the diaspora. People that were waiting for that liberating Messiah. People that were waiting for Roman uh, rule to be overthrown. And that, that kind of messed with me, too, you know, even as a man of color, Afro-Latino in our society. It's just like, okay, um, you know, what does, yeah, what does progress look like for me? People of Israel were like, what does progress look like for us? What does liberation actually look like uh, for us? And, and, and I think that that's the part we, we need to wrestle with. You know, mm-hmm. the, it, is, it is those complexities. So me as a person of color who didn't grow up with means uh, have had to wrestle with what, what in Jubilee, in Jesus's Jubilee plan, what does upward mobility look like for me? And, and how do I... Uh, engage that in a way that doesn't necessarily give all of the honor due to Caesar that 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 Caesar wants. Meaning, uh, just like Jesus tells the, the the sons of Zebedee, right? I know you want to be on my left. I know you want to be on my right politically, but really, like the Gentiles are about that stuff. Mm-hmm. But here in God's economy, the resources that you're given, the education that you're given, uh, 
all of all of the those things that that give you opportunity for ownership in the world are going to be used for different means and you're going to have a different relationship to it and that's the hard part you know what i mean so it's it's a uh, my dr king said i can't be everything i, I you can be until you are everything that you can be, right? And there was a letter from mm-hmm. Birmingham jail. So it's this recognition that this idea of abundance, can God's abundance in my own life or in anybody's life cannot be understood within the construct, construct of individualism. It's not mine. It's not siloed. I don't hoard it. It's in my house, my car. But I am now living in the ecology of God's grace. So I'm holding on to these things differently. I am being, so instead of being shaped by capitalism per se and, and, and career paths and tracks, there's something going on there that's leaving me in a constant tension as a person mm-hmm. of color. I'm not talking about rich people. Maybe that's something else, you know, uh, maybe Adam can cover that side of the, the, the spectrum. Uh, <laughs> but I'm talking about folks who are on the come up, so to speak. Like, what does that mean? Like, I think in minority communities, exile communities, diaspora communities, we have to ask ourselves, like, what, is, what does it mean to, to get on a just path where you are not repeating the patterns and the practices of the empire, mm-hmm. but you are coming at this uh, from a, a consistent place of tension? And I think that's the key word there, John, that I am in, even when I do get something, I'm in tension with it. I'm not just settled in it. And I think that that... That's the Christian call, to be in tension with your resources, to be in tension with culture, have a peace about it. Yeah, there's a blessing to it. But I, I always got to be asking myself, who's not eating? Who's not represented at this table? And I won't be t- totally settled in my own quote unquote success until I see Jonathan succeed, succeed as well. Hmm. And I think that's a real, a qualitatively different approach to, uh, to, to economics in an ecosystem as a Christian. One of the things that Jose and I started thinking about a little bit in the book and have certainly been talking about a lot is this idea of a solidarity economy, which is not uh, new to us, but but an economy of solidarity uh, takes into account people's starting points. Uh, where, you, where you start in the world frames the way you enter this new space where we're saying we're, we're in an economy that's that's marked by solidarity. And I think that one of the things that that necessitates is that um, we recognize that that the upwardly mobile or the the rich or the wealthy in our in our society uh, they are not the exemplar. We're not trying to get everybody to that place. That indeed uh, the rich are enslaved to wealth, uh, enslaved by wealth as well. And the, you know, the, I think the real tragedy is the way that. Um, uh, wealth confuses us into uh, confuses us into thinking that that our enslavement is actually a pride of place, that it's actually a privilege. Uh, and you know, when Jesus came and he said, "I've you know, I've if if I've set you free, you'll be free indeed." The people that he said that to got mad. Like, what are you talking about? We're not enslaved to anything. Why are you going to set us free? And, and I think that's a that's the same thing that's going on. It's like Jesus came to liberate us from our oppression to economics, from our own like enslavement to wealth, and rich people the world over. Like, what are you talking about? I'm living the dream. 
Uh, and I think for us to really lean into the kinds of ecosystems that we're talking about, the neighborhoods and the communities where we are authentically all in it together, that there is a real uh, work of, uh, I guess I would call it repentance on the part of the wealthy to say, no, I need to be set free. And that that's going to be accompanied by tangible acts of divestment, of restitution, of reparation, you know, those kinds of things. And I think that those kinds of actions begin to say what what I had was an enslavement. What we can create together is much more reflective of God's abundance and freedom than what I had before on my own. Mm -hmm. And then what so many people perceive as, you know, oh, you're just trying to punish me because I'm rich by getting me to give my money to other people is actually reframed as liberation. Right. Mm -hmm. I think as long as we frame, uh, you know, divestment as an act of charity, uh, whether forced or philanthropic, we won't get very far. I think if we see it as a surrender to the need to be liberated by God and a response of faithfulness to God, then we might be able to get somewhere. Mm. Mm -hmm. Like Jesus desires to liberate us from the the supremacy. Like he is supreme, like we are not. Um, and there is something, I think, there's a false empowerment that comes from charity. Um, and then there's a, a false repentance that comes from like the, like, you know, going back and looking like John D. Rockefeller and these other people that invented the like modern philanthropic movement. It's like, this is a false confession, a false repentance, right? Um, it is nowhere near enough, nor is it true to the living King, but you know, this type of um, inadequate absolution basically mm. um, for what they were trying to to do and have done. And, we live in the, you know, the downstream legacy of that. And so um, I'm very much looking forward to people who read the book taking the path of liberation, not liberty. People who prayerfully will have prosperity redefined and generosity um, sparked as their imaginations begin to um, engage with the idea that maybe the story that we're living in is not the one we should be in even sitting in our congregations and looking at our budgets and looking at our endowments and how the church is going to be sustainable and all those kinds of things. And so may it be so as people um, dive into what it looks like to, to reflect the beloved community that King talks about and the economy that, that Jesus called us to. Amen. <laughs> Jonathan, you want to ask about hope? Oh, do I, yes, I do. Sorry. I was, I was thinking, I was like, can we do this? Uh, <laughs> ah, so Jonathan wants to get like a planning committee together. He doesn't want to ask any more questions. Man, I've got because, like, I mean, chapter. So chat the chapters in my book, like five, six, and seven, are about like democracy, generosity, prosperity, and then like we we have to redefine what it means to be rich because Jesus does. Like he just does that. You know, we yeah, have to redefine yeah. what it means to be generous because Jesus does. Like. And we see those questions of people pop up all the time to question God's generosity. So when, you know, the story, the parable of being in the vineyard, right? Like Jesus decides, or the, you know, the purveyor of the vineyard decides, I'm going to give the same wage to everybody. And we see that pop up today when people are like, well, what do you mean they're going to get paid more money? You know, because we have this tender that goes back and forth. And there are some people more invested in the flourishing of the folks downstream of their stewardship as opposed to um, the radical exploitation that's before them, you know? Um, so anyway, 
Jesus come. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, it, we, we, you know, what, you, what you're talking about is just like it rails against this idea of meritocracy, right? Uh, I, I gained, I, I earned, I right. got, and and here, here, God's math and God's economy is is turned up is turning our, our current system upside down, and mm-hmm. I think I just think about like just uh, the average Christian in America, if if this is offensive then this idea that you're bringing right that you know we need to look at what generosity means we got we got to look at what enough means if these things bring tension to you then i say good because chances are uh we i'll put, put myself in there we have been discipled by the ideology of capitalism and mm-hmm. and just by the fact that we're not having this conversation i think one of the disservices that's happening now you know in justice circles Mainly in the church, because sometimes I feel like other folks get uh, get uh, more expansive in their uh, engagement to justice. Um, how race and class are tied, and it's mm-hmm. something Adam mentioned earlier, inextricably tied. Uh, you can't talk about one without talking about the other, and and I think that so even in in our justice in, initiatives, if we're not looking at yeah, how is it that people have benefited economically from you know impoverished schools. Well, yeah, you know, there's a lack of opportunity now for a whole whole community that doesn't, resources are now going somewhere else, right? So, or school to prison pipeline, who's benefiting off of that? What companies are benefiting off of uh, creating these prisons? So if we don't see the, econ- the, the economics behind these things and actually look at that in serious ways, then we're not gonna be able, we're not, we're not maybe gonna be able to topple the machine but we could sure frustrate the machine and, and throw some mm-hmm. dust in its gears. You know, that's the way I look at it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, Ewok resistance. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So, so in all that, right. Like it can, it can be hard to like think about enacting this, right. Like we're having this conversation and I think all of us want to see strong neighborhoods and are actively working towards that with the influence and stuff that we have. So like, but it can feel like neg- nebulous at like best and impossible at worst, right? To achieve given how huge, complex, and greedy, like that's like you said, the waters that we're swimming in are, right? And so what gives y'all hope as you're like consistently involved in this work? Um, and we're still on this side of heaven. Well, I think the first thing that I would say is I'm I'm with you. I hear you, and that frustration is real. I think staving off despair uh, is is a consistent part of the discipleship work of anybody that cares about justice and the kingdom of God. You have to you have to see the cultivation of hope as something that's you know primarily an eschatological reality that like animates my day to day. Right? I got a good friend. David, who says, yeah, I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. I think that that little play yep. is, is, is kind of like a, a way of walking through life. I think that's, that's true. Um, and, and then I would say this, that, that everything that we're writing about and the stories and the people that we're, we're talking about in this book are folks that are, are trying, we're trying our level best to, to take the kingdom of God seriously, to take the way of Jesus seriously and allow that to animate our imagination. And so to that end, you know, Jesus said things like the kingdom of God is, is a little bit more like yeast. 
uh, in that it slowly works its way through. Um, there is a there is a sense in which the the parables that Jesus told are like whispers of the kingdom of God. And so, if we're doing this work, the stories we tell, I think, are like parables. They're not, you know, the global economy is not changing because of Pastor Samuel in Detroit. But is Brightmore changing because of Pastor Samuel in Detroit? That neighborhood, absolutely, mm-hmm. uh, that is true. And I think that that is ultimately a primary characteristic of the kingdom of God is that it is often unassuming, and yet there's some sort of like power that I don't fully get um, because I'm so trained to think that power happens top down. And there's something kind of organic and grassroots about the way the kingdom of God works, and so I try to allow that to sort of fuel my sense of hope, if not optimism along the way. Amen. Yeah, just to jump off of uh, Adam and, you know, the the use of uh, startup metaphors, right, that Jesus did, right? The mustard seed, starter bread, right? Starter dough. Uh, The things that are unassuming, but then uh, can take root and form a movement. And, or even Jesus's uh, commissioning, go into the world, start here in Jerusalem, then like, you know, Samaria, folks you got to reconcile with and beyond. So yeah, I, when I when I look at place-based uh, initiatives, hyper-localized initiatives, it gives me great hope. hope. Uh, Adrienne Marie Brown, sort of strategist, writer, she says that small is all. You know, like what are the, the small mustard seed fractal movements, right, that can create ripples and patterns that can reverberate out to um, our larger world, you know, and and I've seen that, you know, for example, uh, in the book we mentioned the land back movement, uh, you know, people returning uh, land to native ing- indigenous folks, and now we're seeing that more churches, United Methodist Church in particular, um, giving out giving back like ten acres of land to the Wyandotte Nation under some agreement, or uh, on, and that's maybe on this like kind of macro level on this what this middle tier what we call meso, uh, you know, churches canceling debt. And then, you know, as we mentioned in the book, Jubilee is also celebration. Uh, mm. The church gets together with the folks and they burn the debt and, and then they just celebrate, right? Because just imagine what it feels to feel be free now and to be able to use that money as discretionary money in, in, this, in a different area. And I think, like, see, see, when we talk about liberation, like Dr. James Cone said, we're also talking about salvation. Like, this is like literal salvation. You are saving me you know, from the the, the, the the economic misery that I was facing, my, my back, as Dr. Howard Thurman says, was on the wall, but your gospel set had something to say about that. And I think that in this, what we're finding is that hope is like, like yeah, liberate. if liberation was just about the soul, and I said this last Sunday, uh, God would have left the people of Israel in Egypt. Your souls are saved. Continue to, uh, and continue to, you know, make bricks without straw. Uh, but he saves them. And God saves them in body, mind, soul, and spirit, and they go and celebrate. And so there's this, so this idea of uh, economic liberation, this this idea of revisiting labor, like mm. seriously, like this this goes down to the the nuts and bolts, the daily fabric of our workdays. How are bosses, business owners, really thinking about the labor force? Right? Is there a Sabbath? Is there a time for rest? Is there a time to let the let things grow fallow? Because we believe that God. Uh, is going to take care of the work that we do. So uh, there, there. I think micro, macro, meso. What excites me about the book is that we give uh, 
some uh, conversation starters around how this stuff can uh, permeate every system and every level of society. And you know, I would just say, go buy the book, y'all. Go buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> is is there anywhere other than uh, obviously going and buying the book Ecosystems of Jubilee, is there anywhere else uh, that you want people to follow you or any other any other work of yours that you want people to to go check out. Jose and I were just talking about this beforehand. I mean, I think that we've been we've been trying to say that the that the sort of individualist approach to life doesn't doesn't work economically speaking, and so we would love to find ways to like read this book in community uh, and imagine things differently. And so one of the things we're trying to do is like, hey, if if there's a group uh, that wants to read the book, like we'll we'll jump on Zoom and. And, and, and join you for it. And so if anybody's interested in that, like, you know, you can find us on our socials, but we would love to, we would love to do that work in community and not just say, Hey, read it and you're, you're on your own. Like we would love to be able to make that available to folks if they're thinking about like, Oh, there's a group that would, that would benefit from this conversation. Oh, cool. So can, can people just get on Twitter and DM you if they want to have you come do that? Absolutely. Yep. Great. Amen. We we really appreciate appreciate uh, the two of you being here. Thank you, thank you so much for coming on. Our pleasure. It was great, great conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us, man. Yeah, of course. So before we leave, just a reminder: uh, in addition to going and checking out the book and and DMing these two, uh, check out ktfpress.com. Consider becoming a subscriber. Get the bonus episodes of this show and our and our newsletter every week. Support everything that we do at KTF Press. Uh, our theme song as always is citizens by john guerra our podcast art is by jacqueline tam and we will see everyone in two weeks <laughs> well, our guests today are Reverend Jose Humphreys and Dr. Adam Gustine. The I said that right, didn't I? Jesus. Now I'm conscious about it. My bad. This is a blooper. We got it out of the way. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um,